0: Welcome to episode 10 of the Wilderness and Wellness Podcast, this time with Dr. Alyssa Crittenden, a researcher working closely with the Hadza, which are a hunter-gatherer community in Tanzania, Africa. And what a fun discussion with Alyssa. We got to talk about a lot of different things. Uh, Of course, we talked a lot about Alyssa's time with the Hadza and their life ways and, and the pressures that they're getting and trying to maintain their culture. We also talked a lot about her research among them into human evolutionary biology, especially on the food side of things. Uh, we talked about one of the, the unique hallmark traits of being a human being. Uh, we talked quite a bit about indigenous communities in general and their stated desires to maintain their traditional culture and what we can do in the postmodern Western world to help them uh, maintain that culture, especially in light of the colonialism that has taken place over the last several hundred years and more. Uh, We talk a lot about uh, the details behind the production and content of the Hadza documentary in which Dr. Crittenden was highly featured, which I highly recommend by the way. And it was just a really, really great conversation. This was a really fun interview for me and really grateful to Dr. Crittenden for coming on and sharing her expertise in this field. So I'm going to do something a little different this time than I usually do. I'm going to go ahead and introduce uh, my guest here in the intro instead of during the body of the discussion. So Dr. Alyssa Crittenden is currently an associate professor of anthropology and the co-director of the Nutrition and Reproduction Laboratory at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Alyssa is an anthropologist who studies the relationships between human behavior and the environment. She seeks to better understand the links between diet composition, reproduction, growth, and development, and health outcomes in small scale non industrial societies. Her research interests fall within the domains of biological anthropology, behavioral ecology, political ecology, evolutionary medicine, and applied evolutionary anthropology. She's worked with the Hadza of Tanzania, East Africa, one of the world's last remaining hunting and gathering populations, since 2004. She's currently working with members of the Hadza community to explore how women and children's health is impacted by climate change, political policy, shifts in diet composition, and ethno-tourism. Her work is published in top-tier academic journals, as well as highlighted in popular outlets such as the New York Times, Smithsonian, National Geographic, the BBC, Psychology Today, and on National Public Radio. She's committed to the open science movement and works to share her research findings with public media domains. Alyssa's research interests are behavioral ecology, biological anthropology, cooperative breeding, evolution of childhood, evolution of human nutrition, food insecurity, growth and development, life history theory, maternal and infant health, and water insecurity. So with that, I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Alyssa Crittenden. Welcome to the Wilderness and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Walline. This podcast is an exploration of the ways that people can reconnect to the natural world through bushcraft, naturalist skills, and time spent immersed in the nature they find around and within them. We also discussed how this reconnection can increase our individual well-being and that of our communities and the earth. Thank you for joining me. I'm really glad you're here. What got you interested in anthropology in general and the study of hunter-gatherer cultures?
1: Oh man, sweeping question to start off. With. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, so man, it's like my, my professional life history. How can I make this very short?
0: I know. Um, <laughs> actually,
1: so I am from the Bay area. I am I'm from California originally okay. and I did my undergraduate research at the university of California, Santa Cruz, um, go banana slugs. Nice. And <laughs> I started out as a pre-med major actually, um, which was not very common. Um, Whenever a hundred years ago, when I started my <laughs> degree, um, it was about 20 years ago, actually. Um, and there were not a, it was not actually a major. So I, what that meant, um, because the, the kind of education system at UC Santa Cruz that time was a little bit more flexible, mm. there were not actually, um, grades uh letter grades given but that's another talk for another day there are now um but at this time the evaluate it was written evaluations for all of your courses and so i kind of was in this very wonderful very kind of eye opening kind of skull cracking um collegiate experience which is kind of what you want right
0: yeah definitely
1: but what this meant is that as a pre-med major because we were sort of piecing it together at this time in the late 90s Um, it meant that I took a wide variety of classes Hmm. and through a, through a variety of there were, well, let's see, how do I talk about this circuitous path I took? Basically a long story short, I found myself in an introduction to human evolution course that was taught by, um, now retired Adrian Zillman and, it was one of those moments, this, those aha moments, I was sitting in a stadium seating kind of auditorium, you know, and there were 300, about 300 students in this course. And it was eight o'clock in the morning. And I thought, well, this will just get rid of some of my general science, you know, credits. And, what is this whole biological thing? That's how
0: it always thing? starts, isn't it? Right, exactly. <laughs> like, I I'll, I'll just like take that. this to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah,
1: this anthropology thing, bad, sounds kind of interesting. I don't know, 8 yeah. o'clock, Ooh, I was very close <laughs> to not taking this course. So I found myself in this big auditorium at 8 o'clock in the morning, and in walks uh, Adrian, in walks Dr. Zilman, and she hooked me. It was this nice. totally aha experience where – Um, I had this dawning realization as the semester continued that it turns out what I was really interested in was human biology, human nutrition, human evolutionary history, the history of female reproduction. Um, I was really interested in this story of how we as a species came to be and how human biology, human anatomy, human brain growth, human nutrition kind of rolled into uh, ecology and social behavior and reproductive outcomes, and I thought, uh, huh, maybe I am. Maybe I don't want to be a pre-med <laughs> major. So halfway through the semester, um, I changed majors, and the rest is history. So that's kind of how I became an anthropologist. Um, awesome. And then I convinced several other amazing mentors uh, down the line to to <laughs> to impart wisdom. Um, and here I am now I'm one of those professors and I teach in that big lecture hall. I don't know if I've, um, converted anyone away from being a pre-med major. Uh, I I certainly love it. And I still teach that class. I teach it every year because it was so important to me. And so I, I, yeah, so I still teach that class. I still teach an intro to human evolution class and I still get up there in front of that, in front of those hundreds of undergraduate students and tell them my story, um, just so that, uh. Yeah. You don't, you don't really know what your path is going to be. Sometimes it's not actually what you expect and then right. you find yourself. So,
0: well, that's, those are the best stories. Those are the ones that, you know, it all, when it all comes together like that, that's awesome. Yeah. So you, you know, and we'll get more into, um, your time with the Hadza, but how much, how about how much time do you spend living among the Hadza?
1: Oh, that's a good question. Well, I actually can answer this. I have an answer. I have a very precise answer. (laughs) Um, One of my graduate students who is just getting ready to finish her PhD from Cambridge University. I'm very proud of her. Her name is Shana Love Levy. Um, Shana asked me recently for a paper that we recently published. For me to count up the amount of, um, so count up the number of times I've been to see the Hadza and essentially the amount of time I've been in the field with them. So, what we were able to piece together, um, I just came back, uh, just less than a month ago. Um, I just came back from a field season, which was my 11th trip to Tanzania to work with the Hadza and to see them. And we figured that I've actually spent well over a year. Um, so maybe about 16 months total, with like living in camps over that 11 month period of time.
0: That's amazing. And, and so I'm curious, so, so our audience, uh, we tend to, to cater more towards the out- outdoors people, you know, people that are hiking and backpacking and, uh, hunting, fishing, doing bushcraft and things of that nature. Uh, had you had any experience with any kind, any outdoor skills or anything before you went? Before you started going to Tanzania?
1: Hard no. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> it was, um, it's been, yeah, again, right? We we find ourselves on these weird paths. Um, so I remember, no, I had actually never been camping. I was not an outdoor person. I had been car camping once when I was 13 to Death Valley. Um, I'm not sure that counts because I showered and, you know, we, so I, I don't know what um, possessed me, but I think what ended up happening is I, I followed my research questions into the field and I've also historically followed those research questions into the lab also. Um, And I was so interested in kind of I guess I was just so interested in seeing what I could learn um, by working in a community of small scale, non-industrial foragers like the Hadza, particularly with women and kids, that I I think that my excitement and my desire to maybe answer these questions and embed myself in this kind of cultural and mm. ecological situation, um, that overtook any fear that I had. I was also, maybe it's good that I had no experience at all, actually, because I was foolish. I, I didn't know what I should be afraid of. Um, right. But I had to learn everything. I had to learn literally everything. And wow. now, of course, uh, let's see what are how are. Fifteen years later, um, I love the outdoors and it is an absolutely integral part of who I am part of my identity part of um, how my family and I recreate I mean it has become this huge component of my life just being outside um but no it did not start off that way so I I had a very very steep learning curve uh initially
0: that's amazing I mean that to me that's the real world application of the things that you've learned over time you know um,
1: yeah yeah I think really. so and also I credit my mentors um two of my mentors Margaret Schoeninger and Shirley Strum both from University of California San Diego where I did my PhD and along with Jim Moore who was also on my research committee mm. also um, now retired from UCSD my committee was very supportive of my research as a doctoral student it's okay you can do it you know you can do it but it was really Shirley who said okay practice like you're gonna actually have to mm. learn how to practice doing these basic things so right. i remember um i remember this so clearly so when i first went out to do my pilot study which was in the summer of 2004 um my i remember my you know i was man i had never my neither i i had never purchased any equipment i didn't really know anything but my grandfather said i'm gonna buy you your tent so my grandfather <laughs> took, to, took me to rei we got you know we picked my tent and I had no idea what I was doing. So he was asking, <laughs> me. I don't think he did either really, to yeah, be honest, yeah. but he was definitely reading the literature, definitely talking to the people who worked this <laughs>
2: the And so
1: we were like, okay, we found the best one, right? So
2: nice.
1: we and I was visiting my grandparents at the time. And I remember he's like, okay, now you have to figure out how to put it together. So I said, okay, great. So he had me go into the front yard on their little patch of lawn they had in front of their house. And, he actually made me stay out there. We were out there for hours because he started making me do timed trials of taking the tent. Oh, and wow. And I thought. For you your crazy. analytical
0: research mind, it sounds like.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely from my grandpa. And I was like, this is ridiculous. I am so glad that he had me do that because that summer um, I had to take that tent up and down in the dark. Uh, wow. in Storms uh, home in like, oh, my God. And then later on <laughs> in that year, in like flooding situations, I had to, you know, you, you would have a flash flood, and you'd have to like figure out how to quickly move your tent with all of right. So yeah, the timed trials on the you know lawn of Mountain View, California, actually really did pay dividends later. Um, right. But now, now it's yeah, now I'm much more comfortable, and I'm sort of a gearhead out there now because I realize kind of what I need. And um, but i I also I don't actually. Yeah, it's it's funny. I'm very very picky now about the stuff that I will even bring out there, mostly because we're so limited on space. Also,
0: right? Yeah, so. and I, I imagine you through trial and error, you've kind of learned what works and what doesn't over the years, too. So. Yeah,
1: yeah. I've I've tried many different things out, and I <clears throat> I would like to believe, uh, <laughs> believe the thing I hope that I have a pretty good system. But I, you know, I learn from the hods all the time. Every time I go out and think I know something about being outside I'm like oh yep 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 I know nothing yep. okay um so I am an anthropologist and um I am I would say that I kind of sit at the intersection of kind of biological approaches to studying anthropology and cultural approaches. And what this means is I'm really interested in people. So anthropology is the study of people and I'm really uh, interested in cross-cultural diversity. So learning what we can from different populations all over the world. My background is in human evolutionary biology. So kind of how we evolved into bodies that look like this, that do the stuff that they do. Right. And most of my training has been in nutrition and nutritional ecology. Um, and I've spent most of my time working uh, with women and children in this community. So I'm giving you this background on myself so that you kind of, you can kind of understand what drew me to work with the Hadza to begin with. Right. Um, yeah. So in asking these questions um, there's a couple of different lines of evidence that you can take um, as a scientist who's interested in kind of figuring out how we got here and, you know, <laughs> looking like this <laughs> the yeah. we live in. Um, and one of the things that I was really interested in is kind of learning about particularly um, female human primates. Um, so women, we, we have kind of a very interesting and unique reproductive system biologically And I was very interested. I'm very interested in how that evolved. And I'm also very interested in how the kind of biological components um, of our reproduction and our very unique kind of reproductive system in that we have these really big brained babies and that we're, they're dependent on us for a very, very long time. And they need all sorts of resources. That's quite unique, uh, not only for animals, but also for apes. And so, okay, so how do we figure out how this system works now, which is cool because you can do a bunch of cross-cultural research now and figure out how different people make it work all around the world. But also how do we project that into the past? Like, How do we figure out maybe what we were doing, um, what our ancestors were doing? We don't have a time machine. So in absence of a time machine, there's a couple of different things you can do. And one of the routes you can take is to find small scale foraging populations. So um, communities of people who are who are foraging for part or most of their diet from wild foods, living in ecosystems that may be similar to those ecosystems that we evolved in. So that's kind of how I became interested in going to visit the Hadza and working with them initially, very, you know, very early on, as right. I said two years ago, is I wanted to learn more about how social behavior wrapped into ecology, wrapped into reproduction and health outcomes in this group of foragers. So, The Hadza are a very popular um, foraging population right now to work with. They're a very popular foraging population um, to go visit as a tourist. They're a very popular community for film crews to visit. Mm. And there's a lot of very good reasons for that. They are fairly easy to access now in uh, 2019. They live in northern Tanzania, so just south of the Serengeti. They okay. live around a very large alkaline lake called Lake Iasi, and um, there are about a thousand uh, people who self-identify as Hadza. So, speak Hadzane, which is their first language, which is a non-written click-based language. Oh. So, it's about a thousand of them who speak Hadza, and self-identify, you know, as a Hadza member of the Hadza community. And of that, a thousand, I would say, there's about 150, maybe 200 people who are still living. Um, by a large portion of their diet is is still coming from wild resources so they're wow. still semi nomadic uh and they're still doing their very best to eke out a living um in the bush lands of northern tanzania
0: yeah with a lot of pressure at that oh yeah
1: oh yes <laughs> oh you betcha. yeah Yeah. A lot of pressure, but that's, that's how I started. That's kind of the quick snapshot of the community. Um,
2: Some
1: other cool salient features that I think maybe your listeners would be into. Um, a lot of subtropical foraging communities like the Hadza tend to be egalitarian, uh, which is a really important part of their social structure and really impacts my research in particular, because I tend to work with women and children. So women have equal decision-making power to men. And I think that a lot of research has gone into why this might be. So those of us that study food economies like me, so people who are really interested in why, maybe why and how we evolved to eat the foods that we do and how these foods work in our bodies, um, Mm -hmm. we look to foragers often to inform some of that understanding. And um, especially in a place where you are kind of hanging every day on the ability to find enough food to feed you and your family, it becomes really important to value the foods that women target as well as the foods that men target. And I I say this because I think that it's very, very easy to forget how critical plant foods are currently for people all around the world and we're in our evolutionary past. And so I, I throw that in there because I think that we've learned quite a lot about the significance of plant foods and human evolutionary history from the Hadza um, in particular. And so I think uh, that's something that maybe your listeners might, might find interesting.
0: Yeah, definitely. And um You know, I I have a undergrad in anthropology, so I definitely haven't haven't done any field research or anything. But just in my my own studies, I I was very um, there's two two statistics that were very interesting to me that I didn't know before. One is that the majority of the calories brought in is by the women in in those kinds of societies. Um, Is that was that your finding as well? Oh
1: my gosh. Okay. First of all, let me just say anthro is awesome. And of course (laughs) you're an anthro uh, undergrad. That just, woof, that just makes me happy. So that's (laughs) one A. Um, One B, uh, I guess would also be that, yeah, thank you for doing some homework um, because yes, that is, uh, that is correct. And I think that's, there's, you're correcting a big kind of misnomer that's out there um, in popular media that Kind of our evolutionary histories all meet and marrow right. um, it turns out that the actual data don't really back up that statement and we really evolved as omnivores, and one of the you know everybody always talks about kind of like what is the hallmark of being human. Well, there isn't one, first of all. But um, if if pressed, if pressed, if I must pick one, um, I would say adaptive flexibility and being able to occupy so many different ecosystems so successfully is kind of the hallmark of being human, and that means, of course being able to eat a variety of different foods and obtain the nutrition that we need out of a, a wide collection um, of resources, both plant and animal. But yes, you, you are correct in that most of the quantified data that we have in terms of diet composition for foraging populations around the world, when we do have those data available, which, you know, asterisk, sometimes those data are a bit questionable, but when right. we do have good data to go to, go to, to kind of figure this stuff out, It looks like um, women's plant foods in general tend to be the most consistent foods. So um, they're the most readily available. And in terms of energetic contribution, they do tend to, there's a range, right? There's a range in different ecosystems and a range for different communities. But typically, um, it tends to be over 50% plant food. And then wow. there's there's a trick in there about honey. So some people actually classify honey as a plant food and some people classify honey as an animal product. So, I mean, I think, um, yeah, it's both. So you can kind of pick where you want to, you know, how the diagram works for that one. But um, yeah, honey is also really important. We know for every subtropical foraging community that we have currently living and there are actually. Um, aren't that many. So, so the X, what we call the extant foraging populations or the currently um, uh, kind of existing foraging communities. And I say this because there's so many archeological foraging communities that we look to in the archeological record who are no longer living. And sometimes those get conflated with contemporary modern foragers. And of course that doesn't make any sense to do. So I just want to point out. So for the, for those living extant communities who are still targeting wild resources, every one of those communities in a subtropical ecosystem is collecting honey for part of their diet.
0: Right.
1: And so it it is, it is a significant, it's not just the meat and potatoes debate, um, honey and also larvae and other insects, um, as food come into play as well. So Hmm. that's also kind of, kind of part of the whole, the whole thing that I study is kind of humans and their food. And the Hadza have certainly helped me, uh, kind of gain a better handle, handle on that story on that relationship through history.
0: That's really cool. Yeah. And then, um, the, the second thing that I learned that I was very surprised about that I think the listeners would be interested in and, and tell me if your research has verified this as well, but that hunter gatherers tend to spend three to four hours a day and, and, you know, to, to make their living essentially to gather, you can gathering food, gathering activities and whatnot. Um, is that what you find as well?
1: Oh man, you just hit on hit on a huge debate, actually.,
0: <laughs> and, Ooh, like, um, like,
1: like yeah, I'm teaching a graduate seminar right now to the graduate students in our department here at UNLV um, called Hunters and Gatherers. And so we just spent hours of our lives over the last few weeks talking about um, how researchers has kind of over time mm-hmm. have estimated the number of hours mm. that people in foraging communities spend, making their living versus spend recreating and there was there's a big um we won't go into all the details because i think probably only anthropologists are the ones who <laughs> like, super nerd alert right like right. who can spend hours of our lives talking about this stuff but totally. i will tell you that there is some pushback to that and that i think that time i think that it's really important to understand the temporal component and to me you clearly do because you you already have identified that foragers are living with change and and it's 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 really kind of it's not static right so you're already keying in on something that i think is really important for your listeners to to pick up on and just kind of for all of us to be aware of but the temporal component's important so like historically we have no idea how many hours it might have taken a forager to collect everything they need to feed themselves and their family right we have um data that started coming out at the turn of the last century, kind of ethnographic anthropological data. And mm-hmm. then there was a big um, kind of resurgence in the sixties, give or take kind of looking at this again from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And then now we're having another resurgence in, in 20, you know, starting around 2015 of looking again at time budgets, but you think, okay, well, you have archae- We don't know anything. We can't figure out anything about behavior. Doesn't fossilize, right? So we can't, right. unfortunately. Ah, right. oh, if only it did. So <laughs> we can only look to archaeology to inform us. Um, it informs us a lot. A lot of stuff, really. We can we can ascertain from from archaeological records, but mm-hmm. not so much with things like. Time budgets, right? How much right, people are right. spending to do this? So, if you think about okay, turn of the last century, then you think okay, maybe 1960. Then you think okay, early 2000s, and even into now, 2019. The temporal component matters because
2: yeah.
1: how the ecosystem, the environment, the resources available, the political system and social system that communities are are kind of navigating. All of that is so different at those time points. Yeah, and those so
0: variables, in that yeah, like, absolutely. Sure. So I
1: think. Now, I mean, we could collect time budget data right now, and we could talk about the Hadza. I mean, I think it um, right now, it's highly seasonally dependent. Mm-hmm. and that really matters because there's all sorts of climate change issues and other sorts of political and ecological um, changes, big, big changes that are happening in northern Tanzania, not just affecting the Hadza, but other adjacent um, kind of ethnic groups as well. And I think that the seasonality is important because, that deals with things like so rainfall, right? So mm-hmm. how much rainfall you have in a given year will determine all sorts of things. It will determine uh, biomass production. So how many plants are available? How many plants are available is not only important for the communities living in that space, but also for the wildlife, um, right. and also for the domesticated uh, ungulates or domesticated hoofed animals that might be um, there, utilizing the same space that that kind of are owned um, and taken care of by the pastoral populations who are living in these areas as well. And so people need plants, animals need plants, all the plants need water, how much, right? So you start thinking about all these variables and it kind of becomes Uh. this. um, So I guess I'm going to say there's a range. And I think that in some communities, um, the amount of time that it takes to collect enough wild food to feed you and yours depends on season depends on political climate depends really like even on geographic region where you live. Like we have Arctic circumpolar foragers who are living in really cold climates and are, and are eating mixed subsistence diets. So combinations of wild food and um, donated food and government assisted food and purchased food. Right. So totally different.
2: Yeah.
1: But like your day looks really different if you live in Alaska versus if you live in Botswana, you know, and you're a forager
0: right very interesting so you know as you've done research among the hadza what are some of the most surprising findings that you have come across
1: oh man let's see that is a great question so uh, how many am i allowed to pick <laughs> <laughs> <Is laughs> well? many maximum number okay um some of the most surprising findings i think for me honestly starting out just we've already talked about it is really better understanding the significance of plant foods not only for kind of diets in general um in small scale subsistence populations but also really kind of utilizing these data to better kind of interrogate and understand the archaeological record the paleoanthropological record and kind of really the whole paleo diet movement so i do a lot of um work um kind of in the community and and interviews and also a lot of like kind of public the science for the public like citizen science stuff on kind of trying to dispel a lot of the myths of the current kind of iterations of the paleo diet using actual data you know from these communities that it initially was pulled from and so i think that's one big thing that i guess wasn't surprising but initially early on 15 years ago surprised me and now it's just kind of like the backbone of the way that i think about diet is omnivores are awesome right so start talking (laughs) about memory um So I think that's one surprising thing. I think um, in the last five years, my research has really taken a pivot. Like I've really shifted and I've started um, working much more with the community as opposed to just kind of having my own ideas and my own questions and going out there. And uh, I now am really working with community members to develop questions that they think are interesting, that they think are important scientifically, that also are things that I think are important scientifically um, that I think are relevant ecologically. And so it's been a really neat kind of shift and transition and, and really has changed the way that I think about foraging populations in the 21st century. And I think that um, using something called grounded theory, right. Which is kind of where you like talk to the people you work with and say, well, what do you think you think we should handle this problem? What do you think is a good way to address this thing that we're interested in? And Mm. so I, I try to do that a lot. I also work, um, I'm paying a lot more attention to other disciplines that are kind of totally relevant and, and unbelievably important in terms of the way that I think anthropologists should be thinking about, um, work within these communities, but that's coming out of, um, you know, indigenous studies coming out of human ecology, coming out of human geography, Uh, a lot of really amazing work on how communities deal with ecological and political change Hmm. is out there. And so I think that my, my job now, like my, my job as an anthropologist is okay. How do I bring all this stuff together? Um, And, and how, what does this mean for kind of the history of, of of kind of the story of human evolution, but also what does this tell us about how these communities are currently living in and, and making their way in these spaces. And do we need to kind of reframe the way that we're thinking about how people live in these spaces? And so kind of where do I get information from? And it's, it's been, um, yeah, I feel like I'm a grad student again. Cause it's like this it's like a whole new world, whole new world, but it's, um, so I guess that's the other major thing that I've really been thinking about. And then of course, and then the last thing I'll say, my last kind of big eye, <laughs> eye opener over the last decade, I would say, is that I really do believe that there is there are really important questions, you know, kind of evolutionary questions that we may be able to still find answers to within communities such as the Hadza, but that increasingly we can learn so much um, about human resiliency and what it means to live in different spaces and different ecosystems and in different times by looking at communities all around the world, maybe not just focusing on hunter gatherers, which seems to be certainly, certainly it's romantic to do so. And I, I definitely understand the desire to do that, but I think that it's also really important for us to just kind of remember as, as people who are interested in the way that people utilize these spaces, these natural spaces and how they live their lives in these variety of natural, this variety of natural spaces that, it's not just um, foragers, but that all sorts of communities have a lot to teach us. Um, if only we would listen, right. right. If only we would listen. And so I think that's kind of my new thing. And I, I, I've spent most of my career working with women and children in particular and kind of moms and babies and food. If you ask the Hodgson what I do, that's what they'll tell you. She works with moms and babies and food, um, does weird things with food sometimes and asks us lots of weird questions. But, you know, I have a lot of other projects I do now. And certainly um, my research is diversifying now that um members of the Hadza community are coming to me and saying, hey, we think this would be a cool project. Can we oh. do something like this? So now I find myself in kind of whoo, more like oh, uncharted waters, right? Yeah. But,
0: um, well, they're pushing I don't know. <laughs> we're
1: at school, right? Like we're supposed to try to get as much as we can out of, this, right. uh, out of this life. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm game. I'm game.
0: Nice. That's awesome. And, and, you know, I, I, obviously I'm sure you see it as a way to give back for them, you know, for all the the things that they've done for you and for us as a whole, the knowledge that they've been able to give us through uh, such researchers as yourself. Um,
1: oh, thank you for saying that, Ron. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think I always try to be really careful about how I phrase that, but I think absolutely they've given me so much. And I think that um, anthropologists historically have, have taken quite a lot, right? So right. Um, I think that I. I'm trying to be better all the time with every passing year. I try very hard to just be a better scientist, be Mm -hmm. a better humanist, be, um, try to do what I can in the spaces that I feel, uh, comfortable doing so. But also I think that right now, a lot of what I do that's kind of adjacent to my research life, but is, is definitely very much part of my daily life is, um, making sure that, My research practices are ethical, that my graduate students are conducting um, ethical research and doing what I can to for kind of for community capacity building, um, which means how can I use my position as a researcher? Right. My my privilege, essentially, as an American scientist in this system and access to the resources that I have may be part of my job is to work on funneling what I can, the resources and support and attention to lift up the community themselves in terms of what they are doing. So how can my job be to support what's happening boots on the ground, not kind of insert right. what I think should happen or what I see is the best way forward, but listen and say, okay, well, how can I use my position now? Um, and I have tenure, ha So now- <laughs> I have tenure, uh, to- That's awesome right? Yeah. There's, that's like, yeah, I didn't realize what a huge (laughs) relief that was going to be, but now I can do that. And um, I think that I just, you know, we can all do better and I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to make my way. But also I think that these are important things um, that often we don't talk about uh, Mm -hmm. or I don't get asked about when I do interviews like this. And so I, I guess I don't have a ready pat answer. It was a long kind of rambling answer, but what you but it means a lot to me that you pointed that out because I think that that's something that far too often just gets glossed over and yeah, so so thank you for that question.
0: Absolutely. And thank you because it, it's so refreshing to hear that there are, you know, scientists and researchers out there such as yourself and I'm sure you're not the only one that you know have formed bonds with these communities that they work with and and really do want to use their position and, and their privileges—you put it—to give back in a way because we have, as as Western society, we have taken so much from so many Indigenous communities, and and there's not very many left that are at least trying to live the lifestyle that they have for you know hundreds and thousands, tens right. of thousands of years sometimes. And
2: right.
0: um, I think it behooves us as as culture, as a Western societal culture, to support these communities in their desire to to maintain their culture and their lifestyles um, because of of you know the, the damage that we've done in the past. So so thank you for the work you're doing in the field and that's really really important and, and I'm that's glad cool. that this message is getting out to to others. Well oh, um,
1: thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean I think it's also, for me, oh, am I allowed to add one more eye-opening thing?
2: Absolutely, please. <laughs> um, you
1: just triggered something that I, that kind of in my mind that I think is really important and really cool. And I think, um so for me, and I, I realize I'm biased and I realize that so much of my research is, is looking at the way that human communities, uh, kind of how ecological variation impacts, you know, how people live their life and what that means for food and what that means mm. for you know, raising your babies. And I, I i know I'm biased, but I think that it's actually so amazing to really, really bring in all these different lines of evidence and, and listen to sorts of different groups of people who work among in and with these communities. Yes. Um, because you, you, at least I, I can't speak for anyone. I have learned so much in that, There is this very interesting word, this really interesting place kind of in human history where you have communities like the Hadza who still very much are fighting for land rights, who still very much want the opportunity to stay uh, in the bush and forage. But also those same communities are very interested in um, having cell phones. They right. do have parents. They're <laughs> very interested in having polio vaccines. They do get polio vaccines. They're very interested in. Um, some of them are very interested in sending their children to school to get an education. They do go to school, right? So part of this is also how do we also combat this kind of romantic notion that that we want to help keep foragers, you know, in right. in the bush, and and maybe for me it becomes. Man, I, how do I want to? I guess for me, um, kind of as a, as a social scientist, and also mm-hmm. as a person who, I don't know. I guess I'm just kind of a curious. Yeah, as I said, student of Earth school. Right, I'm just kind of a curious person. But for me, it, just the way I think about it, and I think about it a, little, a lot, probably too much, um, <laughs> is that it's a basic human right. It's kind of how I think of it.
2: Absolutely.
1: So if foragers want to continue foraging. Fantastic. How do we work? How do we deal with the parameters in place to provide assistance when assistance is requested which right. I think and if foragers no longer want to forage and they're interested in uh integrating more into a market economy into um you know sending their kids to school into being uh guides for tour guide operators so i just i have some i have a friend who is um working with a lot of Hadza uh, guys right now who are trying to get their license to learn how to ride motorcycles because (laughs) they want to be able to offer motorcycle rides from camp to camp for people that need to get around. I mean, so, okay. So how do we, how do we do that? Like how do we occupy all this space? And I think that, um, we are in such an amazing time in human history right now because we are in a time when all of those things are are possible. Right. Right. So like all the things are possible. And I think that is what makes this a very exciting time for me to be an anthropologist and a very exciting time um, to be a person who is, who listens to your podcast, honestly, because Mm -hmm. you are not, tethered to just the information that that you're kind of spoon fed like maybe you were 30 years ago like people have this crazy interweb right which they can (laughs) like do their own research and kind of take a deep dive and so i think that that i don't know i just think that we're in this cool time and space where like people listening to your podcast are getting like a primer on i don't know (laughs) evolution of human diet but also like human rights and also like how this crazy weird, you know, professor from UNLV (laughs) doesn't know how to set up a tent, like like (laughs) all the stuff. And so I think that that's kind of the beauty of, um, access to content and information. Of course there's the dark side, but we'll stay light. We'll stay airy light today. Uh, But I think (laughs) that that's the cool thing is that you can get a more multi-dimensional view of what's happening in the world now. And I think that that can only be a benefit.
0: Absolutely. And, and they want access to those things as they see fit, you know, and, and isn't that the hallmark of the human experience? is, is adaptation. Like we were talking about earlier, you know, that's why we've been able to populate the entire globe because we, as people, as human beings, as homo sapiens have adapted and overcome. And it makes sense that, that the Hadza would want to adapt too. And and that's,
1: that's neat. Yes. Preach. Yes. I, yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I'm already, um, yeah, I'm I, yes, I couldn't agree more.
0: Very cool. So for us, you know, living this modern Western lifestyle, what, what would you say are the most important things that, that we can learn from the Hadza from their lifestyle and from the, the research that has been done on them? Um, what, right. what, what do they have to teach us?
1: Oh man. Okay. This you, you might not know, but this is actually this is quite a political question that you really. Just asked. Yes. So I, I will try know. to I will try to handle this in the best most uh, kind of. Oh, I will I will handle this question um, the best way that I can. Sometimes I'm clunky, but we'll try. We'll, we'll do. We'll, we'll go. We'll go for Let's we'll go it. Let's
0: do
1: it. So I think it really comes down to. Uh, so there's a the the scientific literature, as well as popular media coverage of scientific literature, likes to blast the airwaves with this idea that we can rewild ourselves, rewild our microbiome, rewild our diet, rewild our exercise or fitness plan, right? And so I think that there is often good and interesting science um, inter, inter, good, interesting human biology. Uh, human biological science happening. But I think that sometimes it's embedded in this larger narrative of we can go back to our hunter gatherer roots. And I would strongly caution um, anyone, any listener to this program or any kind of critically thinking um, fellow earth school student like myself to really evaluate what that means uh given that we live in 2019 uh and the global economy is a thing right, right so
2: right.
1: how remote are said remote populations how uncontacted and if you can see me i have air quotes around uncontacted <laughs> are these communities and is it possible to rewild X? Um, I say no but the asterisk there of course is that we still can learn so much from these communities when, uh, particularly when we are collecting data ethically, um, and with very sound scientific principles in mind about the limitations of what your data can tell you. Hmm. So we have learned so much from these small scale communities. Um, one of my kind of side projects, um, or my grad students call them my, my side hustles, <laughs> <So> <laughs> one of my side hustles scientifically has been working with, um, a, a large, large, large collaboration of people on the gut microbiome and what we can learn about the evolution mm. of the human gut microbiome by working with the Hadza and looking at their diet. And so do I think that there are really interesting and important findings that come out of this type of cross-cultural work? Absolutely. Do I also think that we need to be better and, um, pay attention to all of the variation that's at play and be very aware um, of the ecological kind of how mercurial kind of
2: Mm.
1: and ecology can be in these situations. Yes. Right. So I think that it's, it just requires us to be more thoughtful about the way that we interpret data coming out of hunter gatherer communities um, on the biological side. I think that, but I do think we can learn a lot. Um, What can we do in the post-industrialized West? Let's see. What can we learn? Well, I think there's quite a lot of value of understanding where we came from evolutionarily. And I think that there is so much to be said for having a very basic understanding of how our species came to be Mm. and what is similar Uh, with other species and what kind of what makes us different and what may have driven a lot of those changes in terms of selection pressure in terms of thinking about our evolutionary past one line of evidence that we can use to better understand that is to look to contemporary foragers Uh, we were foraging uh, for 95 percent so far of our human evolutionary history so i do think that foragers have a lot to tell us um you can look to a lot of historical documents, historical ethnographic accounts of of, of foraging communities, again, um, with the understanding that a lot of those narratives were from very particular perspectives historically, mm. and from voices that were from people who were given a voice, maybe when other researchers or other uh, even members of those communities were not given a voice. So I also encourage people to look to very contemporary ethnographies um, of foraging communities that sometimes are even written kind of with the members of the communities themselves. So you mm. learn so much about that. Yeah, um, And moving forward, I think, I think that there is a lot of value in kind of really understanding what is motivating a lot of these communities in terms of their land rights struggles. And um, you know, man, the pace of change is oof. Yeah. And, Changing everywhere, um, but a lot of small-scale non-industrial populations, foragers, yes, but also other types of uh, kind of other populations who have different subsistence regimes. Also, that pace of change affects communities at different rates, uh, depending on what country you live in, depending on what kind of ecosystem you live in, depending on the degree to which you have access to healthcare and education, and whether you live, you know, in a rural area or an urban area or a peri-urban area. And so, I think that. Really understanding the context in which we are looking at these communities to tell us something about who we are. Um, I still think that that's important, and I think that we can learn so much, mostly just about the wide variety of the human experience. We
2: yeah.
1: it's so so important to better understand who we are as a species and a global community, and right. I think that really working with communities and and reading widely and um you know i don't know getting out of your comfort zone like watching things you might not watch there's amazing documentaries out there right. that can learn so much from and there's amazing things that we can read and there's all kinds of really cool podcasts and there's all kinds of really cool um things that you can you can kind of do to better to better educate yourself as a global citizen on kind of other life ways out there so i think foragers definitely play a role there Absolutely. and i think um there's also ways to support communities now.
0: Yes. That, please tell us about that.
1: Okay. So what I, I, hmm there's, yeah, let me think that's a bit, that's a tall order. I, I will only speak of the ways that I think that kind of two things that I think are really cool that your listeners might be into um, in terms of kind of what the Hadza have going on at the moment. Um, I can't speak to other communities. Most of my experience is with the Hadza, but there is, um, There is a nonprofit that operates in Tanzania, based in Tanzania, and it's called the Ujamaa Community Resource Team, or UCRT. And it's this really dedicated um, group of individuals who essentially work across northern Tanzania, and they work with many different communities. One of them is the Hadza. Right now, they're one of the only groups that I know of um, that has there's a lot of accountability for where the funding goes if you donate and they have all sorts of different programs, um, going. So for instance, there's a whole land rights, uh, you can donate to land rights for the Hadza. There is community capacity building, um, kind of a different, they have a lot going on working with the community where they can do things like open up their own, um, little storefront to sell things oh, cool. that tourists are purchasing or mm-hmm. there's a women's empowerment um, women's kind of leadership forum that's going on with, with UCRT. So that's kind of one way to help the Hadza directly. I think that, that I know of uh, another cool thing. And I think your researchers will really be into this. That kind of helps in general is the Hadza have teamed up um, with this group called carbon Tanzania. Okay. And um, they're really a really cool Organization, Uh, they're a five hundred one c three nonprofit, but they're totally, in my opinion, um, what do I know? What do I know about nonprofits? But um, I'm just, you know, super nerd professor. But I think it's really cool, and I, I'm just so interested in it because essentially they've worked with the Hadza to they have this big area of land that's been deeded to them by the government. Now, uh, the boundaries have proved to be unenforceable. A lot of different communities are using the space. They're working on it. It's kind of a constant negotiation. Um, There's a lot of debate about whether foraging communities like the Hadza have actually been pushed into the most marginal areas of their habitat or not, depending on how you're measuring that. Um, That's definitely something that the Hadza would say that is going on uh, right now in 2019. Mm -hmm. But you can actually donate to Carbon Tanzania in a couple of different ways. You can donate to them just kind of straight. um, And they're working with Uh, the Hadza, they're working directly with the Hadza who are living in Yaida Valley. And they're working on this area using this land that was deeded to them. And they're helping essentially do carbon offset. uh, They're doing carbon offsets. Mm -hmm. So what that means is that you could, for instance, donate an amount of money to Carbon Tanzania that would offset your annual vehicle emissions by essentially you pay and then... Obviously, there's really no carbon emissions happening in this area of bushland in northern Tanzania. So you can offset the cost of your vehicle by essentially doing that. So you offset the emissions from your personal car with certified offsets from carbon Tanzania. And you can even do like crazy stuff, like pick the size of your car. Like, yeah, my whole family knows what they're getting now for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> or you could do stuff like, you know, I don't know, uh, buy a gift certificate or you could even offset your own household emissions. And essentially what you're doing is the money that you're donating is going directly to the Hadza community. Yeah. And you're also using certified carb- carbon offsets to protect those wild places that we so value. That's Um,
0: fantastic.
1: And it's a way to do it like from your office, right? So there's a way to literally help with um, kind of ecosystem and cultural conservation in northern Tanzania by, you know, I don't know, Clicking the little house icon on the website and saying, okay, well, how many people live in your house? How big is it? What does this mean? It also is really kind of an eye opener for us to better understand our own carbon footprint. So I think that's something that I'm always very aware of when I come back from the field. Like... Mm. I didn't take a shower for two days. <laughs> Finally, my family's like, You're back now. You want to take a shower? <laughs> like, I, start, I start thinking about uh, water in a very right.
2: different way. I yeah, absolutely.
1: Just all of it. I start thinking about, My God, like I'm talking to you right now from my awesome climate controlled office, yep. right? Yep. That is a luxury. Um, so you just, I don't know, just kind of, I think doing these little things can actually kind of make open your eyes a bit to the ways in which we can change the way that we occupy wild spaces also um or use resources from those wild wild yeah. spaces.
0: yeah absolutely because even even when we're not in the wild spaces we are having an impact on them
1: absolutely yeah, definitely absolutely
0: that's cool that's really cool well thanks for that yeah and i will i will put links to all of those things that you mentioned in the show notes for this show for so for oh, listeners who want to go check that out and uh see how they can help they will be there for them. So. Awesome, thank you. The last of the first, mm-hmm. and Alyssa, you were highly um, featured in this documentary and it was so well done. And I really, really loved it. And one of the things that, that, uh, really stuck out to me while watching this was I was struck by how happy the Hadza seemed to be. Is this pretty characteristic of their attitude and experience, um, all the time?
1: Hmm. Hmm, 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 hmm. Well, first Great. I'm so glad you saw, you saw the film. That's awesome. I kind of got, I got my arm twisted, mm. um, to participate in that I actually by some ah. friends, but it actually ended up being, uh, wonderful. It was and, really,
0: really and, good. I really enjoyed it.
1: It was a very, it was a uh, great experience for me. I kind of came onto the project late. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of other kind of talking heads in the film, uh, before they brought me on. And, um, I, I was already kind of working with the community and they had already done a lot of filming and at the urging, um, I was asked to be part of it and I kind of originally declined. And at the urging of some of the members of the Hadza community, who the women who had been filmed, I, I acquiesced and I'm so glad that I did. I'm so glad that I actually was part of that. Um, for a couple of reasons. One, I really have to hand it to the filmmaker, um, to Bill Benenson, who is the producer, uh, executive producer and director. I have to hand it to Bill because, Bill went out to make a different film and it was like anthropology that when I was talking earlier about grounded theory, it was like anthropology action. Bill went out to make a totally different film and the Hadza were like, Hey, Hey, (laughs) we would like you to talk about this stuff. And he was like, okay, uh, let's pivot like halfway through. And let's also start talking about all of this other stuff and all of this change that is happening and kind of put the mic in the hands of the Hadza. Uh So you'll see some different techniques used, um, and a couple of different styles, and so some is kind of like the old anthro uh, documentary style, Talking Heads, right? And then, um, which is good, inf- informative, but but not necessarily kind of kind of the new yeah. trend towards towards uh, documentary films with indigenous peoples. And then there's a lot that is literally the Hadza, and they turned on the mic and they said, "What do you want to talk about? And what do you want this movie to be?" And so. Um, there's been some, um, it was pretty interesting because the Hadza themselves love it. So every time I go, they ask if they can see it. <laughs> so the people who were filmed, the, the camps that yeah. were filmed are always like, hey, hey, we want to see our movie. I'm like, That's okay. Awesome. You know, we usually, like, of course my battery runs down on right. the laptop and it's like on the Ryan rover at night, like in the dark, <laughs> and like moths are flying in front of it. But we all do like hods movie night and watch the hods movie. <laughs> um. So that's cool. That's fun. But I think more importantly than just, they're really proud of it. The ones who were the people who yeah. were filmed and were participated are really proud of it. But I think, uh, for me, the, the, the most significant part of being kind of associated with that project is that it was kind of co-sponsored. Um, I don't know if spon- I don't know anything about the film world. Maybe that's the wrong word, <laughs> but it was essentially promoted and endorsed, um, uh, by the nature conservancy right. and the nature conservancy was able to, um, funnel a lot of the some of the funding that went from that movie towards um, a lot of these environmental kind of initiatives that the Hadza want are, are themselves choosing to start a, to, to start being part of and contributing to. And so I thought that's cool. that was really cool that the, this was not like a money making operation, right? This is something and you'll see Nature Conservancy kind of sponsored it. And now anthropologists and anthropology students are turning to it not as, um, well, first of all, there's no such thing as a documentary that, that is uh, my, I teach a cultures through film class and mm-hmm. my students are always like, oh, we want something that is the truth. And I'm like, what does that right. mean? Right. Yeah. So, um, mm-hmm. there's no documentary out there that's going to give you kind of, um, yeah, there's always bias. There's bias of the filmmaker. There's bias at uh, all of it. Right. But so I think maybe there's some, there are a lot of documentary films that, um, want to tell a story, Hmm. right? And so Hadza last for the first is telling a story and it's telling a story that the Hadza themselves, um, at least the part that at least the stuff that was definitely in there on what their community is going through in this time of change. That's the stuff that that's the story they wanted to tell. And And that that came through for sure.
0: I really appreciate that. Yeah.
1: And there's other parts in there. There's a lot of anthropological scientific stuff in there, which is important too, especially for I think students who are trying to get a handle on why these communities are so important to anthropologists. That stuff's really relevant too. Um, of course, but it's different than the message that the Hadza wanted to tell. You know the kind of story they wanted to tell. And so I think, um, so for, so yes, we're we're digressing, but but yes. Uh, so I'm glad I'm glad that that kind of resonated with you. It's so weird for me to see it. I show it in my film class, but I leave when I turn yeah. it on because I don't know. <laughs> ugh, I just it's so weird. I uh, took my mom and my grandma with me as my dates for the premiere of this film. And it was at the environmental film festival in Smithsonian in Washington, DC. And I had a, had a newborn that I left at home. It was like the first time I ever left her at home. And yeah, so she was at home with dad and um, I got on a plane and like, it was the debut of this film at this film festival. And I'd never been to a film festival and I, (laughs) <laughs> i didn't know anything about it and my have my mom and my grandma as my dates right and of course my mom like diligently um we like hit it so nobody knew what was going on but like she had like my breast pump at this film festival <laughs> I was like, it, like trying to like strategically wrap her like no, around it so nobody would see that the scientist had this equipment with her but i think it's also important to point out like i had a baby yeah. at home and you know scientists look like this and moms right, look like this. Totally. So word anyway so that's what happened and um there i'm sitting there and all of a sudden i'm looking at the screen and i'm looking at my face (laughs) like as big as a building and i just had this oh god i swear to god i got hives like in the theater it was this very weird experience for me um yeah, it was. So that was the one time that I sat through and watched the whole thing was at the film mm-hmm. festival with my mom and granny. Uh, and then after that, I just haven't been able to. I love it. And I'm glad that my students like it. And I think it's wonderful for the Hadza. And I do watch it on Hadza movie nights coming and going intermittently. Right. Um, but yeah. So, OK, so there's that. So the happiness part of that question, the happiness part of that question. Um Man, that's so hard to answer, right? Because who am I to talk about like the happiness quotient of the population? Uh, I can say that I think the Hadza are just like you and Mm. me. I think we have moments where we're happy and moments where we're angry and moments where we're sad and moments where we're just bleh, right? right? So I think, um, I think that the Hadza are just like everyone. And I think that when you are making a documentary film and you have a good eye, like the cinematographer Mm. did, um, Bob Poole, right. Robert Poole, who's a geophotographer, Bob did, he has a great eye and he loves the and they loved oh, him. and it was awesome. this. So it was, it was a lot of that joy that you see captured is because I think they had a lot of fun filming <laughs> and Bob would often just be like, what are we going to do now? And they would be like, we're going to do this thing. <laughs> and so I think that a lot of that happiness that, uh, at least for me, kind of from behind the scenes that mm-hmm. you're seeing on that film were the situations in which they themselves were saying, we think you should film yeah. this thing or we want to go do this thing. Um, and there's also a lot of seriousness. Like there was a section in there that I'm honestly, quite frankly, I'm shocked that they kept it in. And there was this really um intense, water collection situation happening and i did not actually i'm i hand it to the filmmakers because usually water insecurity stuff does not make it into documentaries like this but the Hadza are a very water insecure population and so this is a very key part of their daily life and so um the fact that they left that in speaks volumes and really makes this a contemporary um kind of snapshot of what's happening so Mm. definitely not not a lot of joyful happiness in that scene right so i think part of it is um yeah, I think that the hods are happy when they're happy. And I think that every range of emotion is, is you know, this is, again, this is just part of kind of the cool thing of that film is that you see a range of things. It's not just, you see a range of emotion and a range of experiences and a range of ages. And so there's also a really intense scene in there where some young boys are talking about what happened when they were forcibly sent to a boarding school. Um, not also an an unhappy part. Uh, but then there's some, a lot of singing. So music is really central to their culture. And so a lot of joyful, joyful singing. And I think that that's also very, that's equally as important. Um, you know, and equally deserves equal airtime. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I answered, but that's the answer.
0: Playing and teaching the younger boys and making little bows and arrows for them, <laughs> and then the and then the yeah. young ladies yeah. making their dolls, and that just that was yeah. that was fun for me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it
1: was awesome. And and the kids love that. I mean, I I cannot, uh, as you might imagine, I cannot. I'm not very good at making um, dolls or at making <laughs> bows and arrows, but um, I enjoy very much watching the artistry and of these little crafts. I mean, they're the most amazing. This is, these are functional. Yeah. This isn't just, it is a toy, but it is a toy that can also hit a hyrax and feed you. lunch, Right. So um, that's the, that's the thing is I think it also kind of reminds you very much about the, Type of I don't know just the the variation that exists in terms of childhoods all around the world, and so the kids for me I've worked so often with kids. The kids are such a joy to me, and sometimes when I'm working on a project with Hadza kids, I stop and I have these moments where I'm like, Oh my god, I can't believe this is my job! I am so so that I'm asking them about like how they make their bows and arrows, and then they're showing me how they collect honey, (laughs) and I mean it's just like ah, science is awesome. Um, but yeah, they're, the kids are great. The kids are so fun. It's, I think every anthropologist who works with kids probably says that though. Um,
0: I would hope so. <laughs> I don't know.
1: Just, I would hope so. Otherwise maybe you're right. doing it wrong. Yeah, um, you or maybe, you know, I should say, I shouldn't say that because I mean, there are, there are a lot of anthropologists who are working with children in communities that are, that are actually going through an unbelievable amount of stress yeah. and strife. And I have colleagues who are actually working with, uh, communities in the U S right now who are in detention mm-hmm. centers. So I, sh- I shouldn't say that, but, um, so there's a lot of unhappy work. Uh, that's also important, critical, yeah. uh, work that's being done in childhoods. But I think when you work with forager children and you are doing, I will be very I will qualify my statement. When you are working with forager children, um, in environments where you are getting to play mm-hmm. with them, and figure out how they are making their way in their food economy. Mm -hmm. I think that's really fun. And I think most people who do that type of work um, hopefully would agree.
0: That's neat. How fun. (laughs) Thank you for that. So my last big question for you, question I ask all my guests, what are two books that you might recommend for our listeners?
1: Only two. Or more.
0: If you want to give more, we'll take it.
1: Can I? Can Absolutely. I please. Um, okay. Let's see. So I, I thought a lot of, about kind of um, this is one of the – this is, I knew you were going to ask me for recommendations for people, and I've been like thinking to myself, okay, f- if I'm asked, <laughs> how, can I, how can I give a variety of um, media approaches? So one of the things that I would recommend is to take a view of Hadza Last of the First, which – Maybe will I think I think it's it's accessible online. Yes. Um, I I would recommend a couple of books to your readers um, for more kind of thinking about foragers now in a very contemporary way. So one of them is one of the books is uh, they're both edited volumes, which means it's like chapters that were contributed by a bunch of different people okay. that come together in a collection. Cool. Um, which is also cool because then you can kind of pick and choose which ones might be the most interesting yeah. or relevant to your input. One of them is a book um, that is written that was edited by Tom Hedlin Thomas Headland, and Doris Blood as the editors and it's called What Place for Hunter Gatherers in Millennium 3. So that's a cool right. one, small one, very thin but packed with information. And then another one is is more recent um, and it is another edited volume by Brian Cotting and Karen Kramer, who are both professors at the university of Utah. I love this book. Um, I've assigned it to the students in my current class right now, my graduate students here at the university. And it's called why forage hunter gatherers uh, hunters and gatherers in the 21st century. That's a really good one. And for more of the diet stuff, I would say, um, what would I say? So I would say, um, there's this book that I use that I to teach that I kind of use. It's, um, it's not a textbook. It's very easy to read. It's really uh, well written. It's very easy to understand and follow. And it's kind of like a history, an evolutionary history of humans oh, in cool. type, type book. And it's called Ancestral Appetites, Food in Prehistory. Um, and it's by Kristen Gramllion. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but I, I really like this book. I think it's a good one. Um, and last but not least, I will I will do a plug Please um, do. for if people are interested in in kind of my own research in terms of the human diet, not so much a lot of this stuff on land rights and um, you know changing ecosystems and food and water insecurity and kind of foragers, the resiliency of foragers, but uh, more my research on, kind of the history, the evolutionary history of the human mm. diet, the paleo diet stuff and the human biology stuff. I did a course through uh, the great courses that was sponsored by national geographic oh, cool. a few years ago. And, um, it's called food science and the human body. And I will, I will say, uh, I will give one caveat that I was actually, I only, um, Hmm. Can I say <laughs> this? It's a great course. And, um, I think, National Geographic encouraged some topics and um, Great Courses encouraged other topics. And so the nice thing there is there's 36 episodes and you can kind of pick and choose which ones you think might be the most relevant. Um, and for me, I think not all of them are relevant kind of from what we've talked about, but I like the first couple um, episodes, uh, I guess they're called it. Yeah, the first couple episodes are definitely I would say maybe even the first like four or five yeah. um, are definitely what we've been talking about specifically. So one is like actually called paleo diets and the ancestral appetite. I talk about our past as hunter gatherers and what that means in terms of understanding kind of, uh, yeah, there's yeah. a whole, a whole kind of section on that. There's one about specifically looking to the archeological record and the paleo archeological record. And then there's a couple of very specific ones. Like did meat eating make us human? Um, Was the Stone Age menu mostly vegetarian? I have a whole section. My favorite episode is called "Insects: The Other White Meat." I did name that one. My (laughs) I did, Um, but it talks all about like entomoph, so entomophagy or the practice of eating insects, and kind of how deeply that goes in terms of our kind of evolutionary Mm -hmm. past. And then there's some cool stuff on like the history of humans and fire and cooking. And so I think like those episodes, particularly in the first part of the course, are really relevant to what we've been talking about today and are kind of a snapshot of what I've done. So people are kind of interested in nerding out with me. uh, That's one way you can go. But um, if you don't have that much time and, or you want a different medium, I really, really recommend the Ancestral Appetites book. I think that it's done very well. And I think it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's the, the content is organized in a way that um, really makes sense. And it's also just scientifically accurate. So if you really Mm -hmm. want very easy to read source of kind of like the history of humans and their food and deep evolutionary time. Start there. Awesome,
0: That's great. I will put uh, links to all of those as well. And uh, awesome. And if uh, if people want to get a hold of you, how would how would they do that?
1: Um, I wish I could say that I, okay, so I just sent out my first tweet like two weeks ago. Ah. <laughs> I know, I'm so behind the times, right? Oh my God, I'm so behind. In my defense, um, yeah, I don't, well, I don't have any defense. <laughs> I'm, I'm, behind um, you, I guess you could, I don't even know what my Twitter handle is. How terrible is that? Um, I'm on Twitter if you figure out how to do the, you know, I'll figure
0: out, I'll put the link right,
1: there. All right, figure it out. Ter- and it's like a weird, my students make fun of me. They're like, what a weird Twitter handle. Like, what are you like behind? so i am i'm like 100 years old i don't know what i'm doing so um i did send out my first tweet so i'm exploring the twitter platform um you can find me through my university website so uh university of nevada las vegas um you can find me there uh where else can you find me you can find me yeah those two places so i I get a lot of emails from a lot of people all around the world who are interested and i might take me a while but i do get back i do write back um so if you Hit me up on my UNLV email. Um, might take a while. I might be out of the country. I might be trying to. I might be, you know, putting up and taking down my tent.
0: Watching movies with mods. And...
1: Exactly. I might be doing a movie night, but I will definitely get back to to people who email. Um, where else can you find me? I guess those are the only places where you can you can find me these days. Um, unless you're hiking in the Mojave Desert here in Las Vegas, you might find me right.
0: there, too. <laughs> cool. Uh, well, yeah. Wanna, if, if you want to connect with Alyssa? I'll, I'll put those links there as well. And uh, thanks so much again, Alyssa, for taking time out of your day. Um, this is an important, neat topic. I really appreciate um, you know the 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 way that you approach this with helping us really understand what it is, you know, not just what we romanticize or what we, you know, what spin we want to put on it, because it's important to hear it in this way, um, to learn from people in the field, such as yourself to learn from the Hadza directly, or I guess we can't learn from directly, but um, as directly as we can, which is through wonderful researchers such as yourself. So
1: thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate such a thoughtful interview. Truly. Uh, you have no idea. It's, um, yeah, it's quite refreshing to, to do a podcast like this, to do an interview like this because it, um, yes. Thank you. Thank you for doing your research. Thank you for, yeah, just, it was, yeah, my pleasure. Absolutely.
0: Well, I hope you all enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed conducting that interview. And thank you again to Alyssa, for coming on and enlightening us all on these aspects of research that she's done and, and what we can learn from people such as the Hadza. Uh, feel free to go check out the links in the show notes that I posted about ways to help the Hadza and, of course, the book and media recommendations and, and all that kind of stuff. I feel that those add a lot of value to these podcasts, and, and I hope you're taking advantage of that. As always, uh, feel free to connect with me on Facebook uh, through email. You can send emails to me uh, to ron at coyotespath.com. You can also leave a review wherever it is that you're accessing this podcast, uh, especially on Apple iTunes. That seems to be the go to place, uh, or Apple Podcasts, rather. So feel free to leave a review, share with a friend, all that good stuff. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode, which is going to be with Tony Nestor, good friend and mentor of mine of Ancient Pathways. Uh, he's an author and survival instructor, bushcraft instructor, has been for many, many years. Uh, started teaching classes back in 1989 and is real, really well versed in uh, not only the craft, of course, of bushcraft and survival, but also the industry itself. So look forward to that and we'll see you in the next episode.